You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Megan, this episode is a little different than our normal ones in that while this episode does take place inside a college, the focus here is really more on an academic society than the university itself. So structurally, we don't have much to say about the university or how their policies changed based on this event. But regardless, I think you will find this case pretty compelling and I'm excited to see what you think of the overarching themes and issues here. All right. Have you ever heard of the Bayard Peaks case before? No, I haven't. Yeah, I hadn't either until I started uh, doing some research. So let's start with Bayard. Bayard Peaks was born on December 14th, 1922 in Dover, Foxcroft, Maine. He was the youngest of three children, and even from a young age, he showed a proclivity for science. Childhood friends recalled him being a quiet boy, who usually preferred to be reading in the library than playing outside. And Bayard was particularly interested in physics. Now, around the time he was 14, World War II broke out in Europe. And as many young men of the late 1930s, Bayard wanted very badly to be a soldier and to go fight in the war. But as you probably recall, the U.S. was staying neutral in the war's early years. And even as Bayard came of age to enlist in 1940, the U.S. still didn't seem interested in entering the war. So Bayer decided that he would fight with the Canadian Army instead, since they had already started sending troops overseas. From his home in Maine, crossing the border into Canada wasn't really a far distance, and he was able to quickly enlist with the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was soon shipped to England, where he spent two years before the U.S. joined the war in 1944, at which point Bayard was reappointed to the U.S. Army Air Corps when they landed in England. So actually, um, this could be a side note, but I bet you you're allowed to serve maybe in another country's army as long as your country is not actively in the war. That's interesting. It was a question I was going to ask um, how he was able to join the Canadian troops. But nonetheless, he then wound up with the U.S. once we entered the war. Okay. Mm-hmm. By all accounts, Bayard never saw combat, but he was stationed in England, which was very much an active war zone with bomb raids and other uncertainties. And it seems that being in this high-tension environment had quite an effect on Bayard, as it did on many people. Oh, sure. In 1945, he began to suffer from hallucinations, and he swung from bouts of debilitating guilt to unbridled rage. In between his bouts, he was described as always being tense and anxious and unable to keep still. In March of 45, Baird was admitted to the Army Hospital, 
And after a series of tests, doctors diagnosed him with dementia precox, which today we would call schizophrenia. At the time, they didn't have the term schizophrenia. So he was diagnosed with what it was known as then. Okay, wow. It's unclear if Bayard had always had latent issues of schizophrenia that perhaps lay dormant until he was triggered by the stress of war or the war itself that was the catalyst to these problems. I would imagine it was the war, but also I believe schizophrenia usually develops later as opposed to earlier. So in later adolescence or early 20s. So um, it wouldn't be that uncommon, I think, if it developed or, you know, showed itself in his 20s. That's a good point. Either way, in the 40s, not much was known about how to help people with mental illnesses, particularly illnesses like schizophrenia. And the Army doctor's prescription for his condition was to give him electroconvulsive therapy interspersed with insulin shock treatments. And this is where doctors would essentially overdose him on insulin to such a degree that he would go into a coma. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And he went through these treatments for around seven months in the Army hospital before he was discharged to the care of his parents in September of 1945. But though he was discharged, he was far from cured. He suffered heavily from delusions and reportedly wouldn't eat any food placed in front of him as he believed it was human meat. Now, the VA did make him come back for intermittent evaluations, but though he was continuing to suffer from paranoid episodes and hallucinations, there seemed to be nothing that they could do to help him or prescribe to him that would lessen his symptoms. Well, this is very early on before they knew um, how to really properly treat this. And I I also have to imagine that it might have been exacerbated by PTSD as well. Yes, which I'm not sure that they... That was widely understood either. Yeah. Regardless of his mental health, Bayard managed to enroll in Northeastern University with the GI Bill, and he majored in physics. Now, by all accounts, he was a terrible student. And I'm sure a lot of this is due to the issues he was having um, from his schizophrenia. But his intense interest in physics had him spending a ton of hours in in many physics professors' offices wanting to discuss his unorthodox theories. Now, Bayard was obsessed with early electronics, and he believed that electrons did not exist. And his professors were put off by Bayard's erratic behavior and his strange theories, and a lot of them avoided him as much as possible. But Megan, I'm sure you've dealt with this as a professor as well. Sometimes we have students who might have um, extreme views or extreme theories, or they want to have these conversations that just might um, seem a little bit off topic. And, you know, it's it's our job to let students share their ideas with us. But I also think there's a point where you do have to shut students down sometimes. Yeah, I, I like I don't mind when students challenge me as well on, no, on theories and ideas. I rather welcome it because sometimes they could be right, you know. But there's also a way in which students approach you that might make you feel uncomfortable. And so I think mm-hmm. that's part of the equation as well. If students are challenging me in a respectful way, then it's it's OK. But if their demeanor is more, I don't know, I don't want to say threatening, but if it's more aggressive, yeah. I, I don't appreciate that. So it's probably, yes. I would say, a little bit of both here. Yeah. And I think you kind of um, get a sixth sense for that. You know, when a student has behavior that seem that's seemingly erratic you know, we know that we have tools built into our university that we can ask for help. We do now. Yeah. 
I'm not sure that was available to these professors back at this time. Right. I'm sure you're not surprised to learn that being avoided did not dissuade Bayard from wanting to publish his theories. And in 1948, he wrote a manifesto called So You Love Physics, and this detailed his stance on the electron's non-existence. Now, he submitted it to the American Physical Society, also known as APS. And this is a nonprofit organization that specialized in physics research, publications, and educational outreach. It's one of the more premier peer-reviewed journals in the physics field, so it's not surprising that Bayard would want his work published there. But So You Love Physics was immediately rejected. Once again, however, Bayard was not deterred, and instead he personally printed over 6,000 copies of his theory, and he mailed it or hand-delivered it to as many universities as he could think of. 6,000? Yes. That's intense. Wow. Okay. Right? I know. Um, I was just thinking about what the cost was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was too. And I'm wondering if he used the university's printers or did he use his own personal printer for that? I don't know. Wow. Yeah. Um, The the manifesto was subsequently rejected by all of the schools he sent it to, but he continued to be undeterred, even calling up the physics department of Boston University and asking if they were submitting his paper for a Nobel Prize. Now, Megan, I think it's clear that he's displaying some symptoms of schizophrenia here. So it seems like he's suffering some delusions of grandeur here. Um, Mm -hmm. And not necessarily, that's not necessarily particular to schizophrenia, but delusions in general are. So, I mean, it does seem like it's these symptoms are surfacing here. Yeah. And, you know, we know as academics, the normal process for submitting papers, you submit a paper, it gets rejected. You submit it somewhere else. It gets rejected. rejected. You submit it somewhere else. It gets, gets rejected. rejected. Um, yeah. I mean, I've had several rejections over the years and I never once printed out my papers and handed them to people waiting for responses. You know, as an academic, you have to deal with the rejection and you move on. You tweak your theory or your paper and send it somewhere else. But he was just not giving up. Right. Well, he also wasn't necessarily an academic. He wasn't used to probably academics on the whole and coupled with Mm -hmm. some of the other um, problems that he was experiencing, having some delusions, not understanding. You know, it sounds... Like a a lot. He just wasn't really in touch with the way things were done. And by now, over a year had passed and Bayard was not gaining any traction for his theory of the non-existent electron. And he was starting to get angry now. In fact, he contacted the American Physical Society yet again. This time he wanted to give a presentation on his theory. And in fact, they let him because they had an open forum for academic discourse But, Megan, this presentation was so bad that he was actually laughed off of stage. And even though he was allowed back to give several other presentations, he was deemed, quote, a crackpot. And they continue to refuse to publish his theories. So I think it's like any of our academic conferences where it's an open forum. You could really present what you want. So he was able to present his theories at these conferences. However, they would not publish his theories. Well, do we know what his theories were? Was this uh, you said that he did he believed that ele- electrons did not exist. Were they all centered that around was his this main notion? Theory. 
Yeah, that was his that was his main theory. Okay. So regardless of all these failures, he was becoming even more delusional, particularly after he left Northeastern University in 1950 when the money from the GI Bill ran out. Bayard wrote yet another manifesto. This one was titled How to Live Forever, where he claimed that electrons, while non-existent, would keep humans alive for over 500 years. I don't in an excerpt. I don't understand oh, how how I don't either. Now he's contradicting himself. He's saying, yeah, they're well. He's saying they're non-existent. However, they will keep humans alive for 500 years. So it's just a, a big contradiction. Um, in an excerpt from his manifesto, I think we can get a glimpse into his state of mind. Quote: I still expect to disprove the electron theory, get a political party started, and do some research in medicine. Someday I shall be able to put a few females to work at manual labor so they might grow some brains. What? I don't find, if I don't find the eternal life, their children will. This is clearly someone who is very sick. In fact, it doesn't even make much sense. It's just a bunch of jumbled words. No, that doesn't make sense to me. It also seems like he has a problem with certain females as well. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I'm not... There's a lot. This is the first time. Yeah, this is the first time I'm hearing any indication that he has any sort of hatred towards females. But yeah, there seems to be a lot of anger and it's just confusion, right? And uh, all of a sudden, you just mentioned a political party too. Like, whoa, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Bayard was determined to be published, so he continued to send his work to the American Physical Society for submission to their journal. So before he sent that first manifesto about the non-existent electrons, now he's sending the How to Live Forever manifesto. And I don't think you'd be surprised to know yet again that it was rejected, and even more quickly than the first one. And this time, one of the editors of the Society actually sent him a letter saying he should consider giving up his theories or they could hurt his career. Essentially, Megan, this was the academic version of a ceased and desist letter. Wow. This it's all uh, sounds like it's intensifying. Okay, yeah, and it and it does because instead of the letter making Bayard rethink his theories, it actually caused him to snap. Now it's important to note here that around the same time Bayard received this letter, you know, essentially the cease and desist letter, he had also been declared mentally incompetent by the VA, and he was essentially given over to the custody of his mother. But by this point, he was an adult man, and really his mother had no control over him or his behavior. She had so little, in fact, that in August of 1951, Bayard moved to Boston from Maine without his mother's knowledge. It was literally days before she had even realized that he had gone, and she absolutely could not get him to come back home. Oh, wow. And while in Boston, Bayard began hatching a plan that would force the American Physical Society to acknowledge him. It would be something heinous, insidious, something so vile that they would now have to take notice of him and his work. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. On the morning of July 13, 1952, Bayard went to a local store in Boston and bought a 22 caliber target shooting pistol. So we're talking about a small concealable handgun. After that, he 
bought a train ticket to New York City, where the American Physical Society was located on the Columbia University campus. Now, he was working at a meatpacking factory at the time, so he did have some income to support himself, and he was able to purchase the gun and the ticket. So although he was under the custody of his mother, he was independently working. He arrived at Grand Central Station in the early evening and got a room just down the street from Columbia at the King's Crown Hotel. He would spend the evening at the movies before having a few beers and then heading back to his hotel room to read the newspaper and then go to bed. But as much as he looked like the typical tourist on the outside, internally he was contemplating something horrendous. He would walk into the APS office the next morning and kill whomever he found there. That was his plan, just to kill whoever he encountered. Yes, it did not seem as though he had a target in mind. Early on July 14th, Bayard walked onto Columbia's campus, his motives, of course, unknown to the two students who gave him directions to the building where the APS headquarters operated out of the ninth floor. After riding the elevator up to the ninth floor, he ducked into a bathroom and prepared his gun before walking boldly into the APS headquarters. At the front desk was the 18-year-old secretary, Eileen Fayen. Now, I couldn't find a lot about her background, but I do know that she was a New York City native who actually lied about her age in order to get the job. So I found accounts saying she was 20 years old, but I believe that is what she put on the books in order to apply for the job. But she was, in fact, 18. Okay. Well, so young. And we know she had a high school sweetheart who was stationed overseas in Korea. Now, I'm not sure how long she'd been employed with APS, but she arrived at work that morning absolutely elated as she had just received three letters from her boyfriend. She had immediately sat down to read the first one when the door opened and a tall, dark-haired man stood before her. Do you know if they have dropped the electron theory yet? The man asked. Eileen had been engrossed in her letter and looked up kind of confused and said, I don't know anything about it. As she got back to her letter, the young man pulled a pistol out of his pocket. Eileen had no time to think, involuntarily putting her hands up as the man pulled the trigger. Eileen was shot six times, one bullet going through her left hand and the other five embedding in her chest. Eileen didn't know this man. She wondered who was he and why had he shot her? She tried to stand, but unfortunately slumped to the floor instead, bleeding profusely. When she looked up again, the man had turned away, and her last words were, it hurts. Now the shots had echoed around the ninth floor, and people came out of their offices to see what was going on. One professor in particular, Dr. Green, saw a tall, dark-haired man in a gray suit running down the hallway, a gun hanging from his hand. Dr. Green immediately hid in his office as soon as he saw the man. Another secretary, Miss Lummy, had been coming up the elevator when the shots rang out, and she rushed down the hall to find Eileen face down in a pool of blood. She screamed for help, and Dr. Green and a grad student who had been at the other end of the hall came running. Miss Lummy then called the police as the grad student took Eileen's pulse, but unfortunately she had none. Eileen was dead, and her assailant was long gone. When the police arrived, Dr. Green was able to give a description of the killer, although it was very vague. It basically described most young white men in New York City. However, the New York Daily News sent reporters to re-interview witnesses, 
and their staff sketch artist worked up a picture of Eileen's killer. The picture was then posted all over the city in hopes that somebody would recognize Eileen's murderer. And the police would end up getting a huge break only hours later when one of the physics professors from Columbia University thought that he recognized the man in the sketch. Now, this particular professor had worked previously at Northeastern University and remembered a student that resembled the sketch who had threatened violence when his unorthodox thesis was rejected. I was just going to ask you that because I was like, at Columbia, I thought he was at a different school. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I bet this really struck a chord for him. Like, wow. And it's kind of ironic, right? Because had it not been for this professor, who knows if they would have been able to um, identify the killer. Yeah, absolutely. And to take it even a step further, this professor still had the yearbooks from his time at Northeastern. So he was able to look through the photos of the students and came across one that very closely resembled the police sketch. And of course, that was Bayard Peaks. So it was a good sketch then, too. All right. Yep, and the professor immediately gave Bayard's name to authorities. Well, police would also interview several members of APS's administration. And remember that cease and desist letter that had been sent to Bayard? Yes. Well, the man who wrote it told investigators about Bayard's publications and how he'd been in a one-sided war with APS for several months. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Bayard had also been sending tons of hate mail to APS from six different addresses in Boston. And this would be in an effort to break them down so that they would finally accept his papers. Now, police just had to figure out which of the six addresses did he actually live at. I wonder why, I guess this magazine, sorry, I guess this journal that he was targeting was one of the top in the field. And that's why he was so adamant about this um, particular journal. Yes, that is correct. So investigators looked into all six of the Boston addresses that the hate mail had come from. But unfortunately, Bayard did not live at any of them. However, they were able to contact Northeastern University to get his home phone number, which led to Bayard's parents in Maine. And his parents were cooperative with the investigators and gave police Bayard's real address in Boston. The day after Eileen's murder, two New York City detectives made their way up to Boston, where they found that Bayard was renting a one-room apartment in the neighborhood of Back Bay. Now, I'm not sure if they had a warrant or not, but they made entry into the apartment to find that Bayard wasn't there. However, what was there was a 22 caliber pistol, and it matched the bullets that were found at the crime scene. So they simply sat down to wait for Bayard to return. And to their surprise, he did. Around midnight on July 17th, Bayard entered his apartment to find two armed detectives sitting at his table. And they were a further surprise when he fully admitted to murdering Eileen. And he even told them his plan, that he was willing to murder a lot of the physicists to get his work published. He explained, quote, I just wanted to kill somebody. I was going to shoot anybody. It was my book. They wouldn't even look at it. Now, I know we don't put much stock in affect. We talk about this a lot on our other podcast, Women in Crime. But we do have to say here that investigators found it very strange that Bayard seemed elated and even happy as he detailed Eileen's murder and his subsequent plan to kill other physicists. Now, Megan, he was delighted to give the details of the situation, describing that after he killed Eileen, who he made sure to make it clear that he had not known her prior, 
He said he'd run down the back stairs out of the building and calmly walk back to his hotel. He then checked out and caught the next train back to Boston, as if nothing ever happened. I mean, I think that I think he was, you know, I think that he was just he felt justified. So he's not hiding. You know, he feels like this was okay. He feels like no one would pay attention to him. And because they wouldn't, he was justified in his actions. Yep. He's also he's he's delusional. So you have to Mm -hmm. take that into consideration. And I'm really curious to hear how this is going to work out with, you know, his mental illness. Yes. Yeah, this is clearly not someone who's trying to hide or deny or, you know, he's fully owning up to what he did. Because, again, like you said, he feels like it was justified. He also admitted to police that in the three days after the murder, he'd been following the news articles because he wanted to learn the name of his victim. He says he then started a scrapbook with the newspaper clippings. He also admitted that he was getting worried that just killing a secretary wasn't enough to get him the notoriety that he was looking for. Bayard Peaks was arrested for first-degree murder, and he was brought back to New York City, ironically, by the same train that he had taken there just prior. This didn't seem to dim Bayard's strange enthusiasm, however, as he reportedly interacted with several people in Grand Central Terminal as he was escorted out by police, saying things like, quote, yes, I'm the naughty boy. Well, maybe he he realizes now he's going to get attention. He hasn't gotten this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he hasn't gotten attention before. And maybe this is the time he's going to get the attention yep. that he so desperately wanted now. I agree. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. All right, Megan, it's time to play our favorite game. Plea deal or trial? Oh, I think he's going to trial. You think he's going to trial? Okay, let's see. And why do you think he wanted to go to trial? Because he wants his theories out there. He wants to be known. He wants someone to document his theories. I'm wondering if he was declared incompetent, though, to stand trial is my real question. All right. Well, let's see. So, yes, Bayard wanted to go to trial because he didn't think it was his fault for Eileen's death. But as you just mentioned, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he wanted the attention. He wanted to finally get his word out there. Right. And he felt it, justified. And, yep. Yeah. He blamed he blamed APS for not publishing his work. And he was vocal that they had forced his hand to such drastic measures. So his defense attorney, however, disagreed and said, you know, going to trial wasn't a good idea. And they entered a not guilty by reason of insanity plea. Aha. And he had Bayard sent to Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital for evaluation. And I think this is the right move. Uh, This is what I thought would happen in the first place. Yes. Yes. So as you mentioned, uh, you know, they're now looking right now. The issue is in insanity. The issue is competency, whether or not Bayard is even mentally capable of standing trial. Can court proceedings go forward if he is deemed incompetent? Then he has to be restored to competency before court proceedings can take place. And there's two criteria when we talk about competency that was established in Dusky v. United Mm -hmm. States in 1960. So in order to establish competency, it must be shown that a defendant understands the nature of the charges against them and can aid in their defense. And that's going to be very critical, I think, for Bayard. Yes. And on the surface, I, you know, just looking at this, I would say no and no. We're not the experts here, but in fact, the experts 
did say that Bayard was mentally incapable of standing trial. And one of the reports stated that Bayard was aware that he had killed Eileen, but he has no general understanding of what he has done or that the act was wrong. Yeah. He was then committed to a state hospital for the criminally insane, where he remained until his release in the early 1970s. He then went to live with his mother, but in 1978, Baird was moved to a VA medical center when his mother's health failed, and he remained in the VA medical center until his death in 2000. I'm sorry, what, what year was he... If you look back, do you know what year he was committed to the psychiatric facility? I'm looking to see how long he spent in care. It would be a little under 20 years, I'd say. Okay, But that's a good question because I think that's, you know, that's relevant. But as as you'll see, it seems like he never regained competency, which is why a trial never occurred. Wow. Okay. He was never restored. Nope. All right. So what came out of all of this? So for one, Eileen Fahey was buried on July 20th, 1952, in a funeral attended by over 3,000 people. Her murder had made the New York Times for several days, and many mourners came out to support her family. Eileen's parents also sued the United States military on the claims that officials had known that Bayard Peaks had been mentally unstable for years, and they had not committed him, which directly led to their daughter's murder. However, the courts did not rule in their favor, and the case was later dismissed. The case against the military was dismissed. Correct. And I think she had a viable claim, but times were different yeah, as well. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't. I don't know more details about it. I was surprised to see that the court didn't rule in their favor, but of course, we don't know all the evidence that was available. Sure, yeah. Now, for the APS, while there had always been a long-standing tradition of allowing anyone to present at their conferences. After Bayard Peaks murdered Eileen, the society took a hard look at the way they accepted and rejected potential work. Brian Schwartz, a longtime APS member, explained, quote, What we decided was that from then on, any member of the APS could submit an abstract on any subject to any meeting. In the late 1960s, during the height of the Vietnam War, people were submitting the peace symbol. There were always crackpot submissions. To this day, anyone presenting strange or speculative theories are given a platform at APS in an effort to let all thoughts be heard, no matter how strange or unorthodox they may seem. I don't understand what they changed because they allowed him to submit an unorthodox theory and you're saying they still allow it. So what's the change? What's the difference? So so it seems that they took a long, hard look. And they had decided that it's more important that they allow a stage for people to present their theories, no matter how unorthodox they may seem. But they didn't change anything, really. Nope, but they thought about it. No, exactly. But they thought about it, it seems. Um, Now, one of the APS co-chairs, Jonathan Rossner, explains explains the importance of giving, quote, crackpots this kind of stage. And I kind of see this side of it, too, because... He's saying that there's a possibility that a presenter may get constructive criticism to refine their theory and take it from, quote, crackpot to plausible. There's also the possibility that the presenter is ahead of their time and that their presentation may become relevant years later. And lastly, Rosner reasons that, quote, students who attend might learn to distinguish the chaff from the wheat. It's a good experience for them to be exposed to this now and then. Now, I get what he's saying, this idea that, um, you know, sometimes theories that seem outlandish end up being groundbreaking. 
right? So we shouldn't be quick to shut down anyone who has a theory that seems a little bit unorthodox to the mainstream. Yeah. Do you you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, Theories that seem unorthodox or that are not generally accepted can pave the way for progress. So I don't have a a problem with that. I I don't like the. I just want to say, I hear this reference over and over again to crackpot. I don't love that term. I hate it. I think I do. The only reason why I'm saying it is because that's the wordings they use. But I 100 percent agree. Yeah, with you, no, it's just it's a very derogatory. Um, it's very derogatory. So I don't appreciate that. But I, I think you I do agree. have to allow a platform that ideas that might diverge from our mainstream acceptance. Again, that is the way we make the very way that we make progress. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that means there's no absolutely no screening process if that makes sense that we go to, we submit to academic conferences and there are times where I want, I want to say I was rejected once maybe. Um, I, I can't recall what it was, but I think there, there is a screening process. I'm not sure what it should be. I'm not sure that it means you simply allow every single person who wants to present an idea. I do think there has to be some way to screen applicants, but I'm not sure what that way should be. Uh, I would hate to see it stifle any type of ingenuity and new ideas that might push us forward, even if other Mm -hmm. people don't traditionally accept them. I mean, that's scientific evolution. So there's got, there is, I'm looking for something, but I'm not sure what I'm looking for. Yeah. No, I, I think that the problem becomes there's a thin, there's a very thin line with freedom of speech here. Right. So I think that you know, if you want to allow everyone to have their platform and then the con- the conference attendees can decide what they want to hear and what they not want to hear. So if you have someone who's maybe saying a theory that is clearly outlandish, maybe, and people don't respect it, people don't have to go listen to it if they don't want to. But of course, then there's the issue with when people start spewing hate and how do you, you know, how do you handle freedom of speech versus, you know, hate speech, right? It also so- doesn't sound like the conference was the problem. The problem was that he didn't feel anyone was publishing his work. Yes. So they were allowing and, him to speak, but no, they yeah. weren't publishing it because it wasn't, it yeah. didn't, it, it didn't prove true. It didn't pass academic mm-hmm. scientific standards. And yeah. so no one was going to publish this theory yeah. that was not just not correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also don't think this is even like the main issue in today's case. I think it's the fact that um, someone went undiagnosed or maybe uh, the fact that, Somebody did not receive the help that they needed due to mental illness. And that resulted in the tragic death of a young woman. Sure. Right. Yeah. So I think the question is whether we think that um, Bayard was just, you know, an aspiring scientist who got too carried away with his ideas or if he was really mentally unstable. And I think we probably both agree that he suffered from severe, persistent mental illness. I think that seems very clear. Sometimes it can be both, though. Look, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to say someone was just crazy or Mm -hmm. evil. You know, these terms that we ascribe to both. This case almost makes me think of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Mm. And I was going to say the line between genius and insanity. Right. And so a lot of his ideas were not uh, unfounded, you know, that technology would come to dominate man and many ways we'd become subservient to it there these ideas that might have seemed to be quote crazy at the time i don't think they were unfounded and i don't think they were necessarily so far off the grid um it was also true that kaczynski perpetrated serious crimes so he was a serious offender who 
probably also suffered from mental illness. It was like this perfect storm. So it's not always clear. I'm going to say in Bayard's case, I think it seems more clear that he was mentally ill. And unfortunately, his ideas did not seem to be founded even years Mm -hmm. later. Yes. I just want to, I think something you said bears repeating that insanity and genius are not, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. Someone can have a severe mental illness and also have a theory that is a genius theory that can change the world, right? So I don't, you know, you have to worry that people who have mental illness sometimes are not taken seriously when they might actually have something that, you know, could be good for society and could change the way we look at things. But, you know, either way, Eileen's young life was cut untimely short by someone who probably should have been, you know, committed long before he had the chance to even show up at APS. But again, this was the 1950s, and I don't think people really understood the danger that someone like Bayard Peaks presented. He just seemed like someone who was maybe a little quirky um, and someone who was really into his theory, right? You know, while we have a long way to go on many parts of our criminal justice system, we at least can say that we've come a long way in understanding and treating mental illness, And Megan, perhaps if Bayard had lived in our time, maybe he would have been able to find treatments that could have helped him to achieve his academic dream. You know, perhaps he did have these theories that could have moved the field of physics forward, but unfortunately his illness got in the way. I think that's true, Amy. I think that as we have moved forward, I think he would have found more help in recognizing some of the symptoms or some of the severe symptoms of his mental illness. But I also think that he could have been helped in terms of developing alternate theories and moving forward in academia had he not been someone who was viewed as just out there. And I don't think he it could have been his academic and scientific ideas probably could have been fostered better in today's society. Mm -hmm. At least I really would hope so. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. As you mentioned in the beginning, Amy, this episode was a little bit different, but I enjoyed it. It wasn't your traditional campus killing. Instead, I think this episode was so interesting in that it highlighted the intersection between mental illness, criminal justice, and an academic environment, and how these issues coexisted together, but how they really didn't then. So I think we... I think that this took a different turn. I, I liked it, though. This was unique. And I like looking at these issues together and looking at the possibilities then and what we would hope for today. So thank you for bringing us a very unique case. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network, That not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you, everyone, for listening today, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg. 
with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campus killings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.